Second yeah. Samuel chapter 6, I'm going to read the first eight verses, seven verses. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. It's a good chance it was 30. That, that might be a, a wee translation issue there. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. The ark was the most important object in the history of Israel. Whenever they were told how to build the tabernacle back in, in Exodus, the first artifact, the first piece of furniture that was designed or that they were told the design of in Exodus 25 was the ark. Second one was the table. And it wasn't an image of God because God's people were not allowed to make images of God. They were the image of God. But this box became a symbol of God's presence. It was about three foot long and about two foot square cross section. It would have fitted in the boot of the car, this little box that was covered over with gold. And there were three things in the box. Ten commandments were in it. Pot of manna was in it. And Aaron's rod that budded was in the box. And those three things talked to the people about the character of God. The Ten Commandments spoke about the fact that our God is a God of revelation. And the pot of manna talked about his provision. And the rod that budded spoke of, of salvation and new life. That's, that's the ark, this, this box. And it was treated as a lucky charm by the people of Israel in 1 Samuel. They brought it into battle thinking that it would give them victory over their enemies. And it went spectacularly wrong. The Philistines captured the ark and they had it until uh, they got sick of it because it was causing all of them to get sick. And then they sent it off and it sat in a guy's house for decades. The box, the box that represented God's presence among his people sat in this house for maybe 50 years. And his two sons, Ahio and Uzzah, looked after it. Now in 2 Samuel 5, David wins a victory over the Philistines. A really decisive victory. Not the final victory, but the one that pretty much signaled the end of the Philistines after hundreds of years of tormenting God's people. And David has taken Jerusalem and he wants to establish his rule in Jerusalem. And first priority for him is get the ark, which has been away for far too long, bring it back to Jerusalem and give the people a focal point for worship. As David wants to establish his throne and his kingdom and his rule 
in Jerusalem. He also wants the people to know that it is not just David that is in charge, but ultimately God that is in charge. And that Jerusalem is the city of God and the city where he is to be worshipped. So they decide to get the ark and get it back. David writes Psalms about this, about his desire to, to, to bring God's presence back in among his people. And he says he won't sleep until he does it. But when he does it, disaster strikes. And to summarize this little passage, they put the ark on a cart, a nice new cart that they've just made. They've got somebody who can do woodwork and, 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 and make some wheels and stuff. And they've got this nice new cart and they've got some oxen and they put the cart or they put the ark onto the cart and away they go leading the ark back to Jerusalem from the house that had been sitting in. And on the way up the road, the oxen stumble, the cart tilts and the ark looks like it's about to fall out or fall off and Uzzah who's walking beside it reaches out to steady the ark instinctively reflexively just puts his hand out to steady it and as soon as he touches it he drops dead instantly that's pretty shocking if you were making up the bible to try and hoodwink people into following some sort of false god these aren't the stories you would include okay these these are hard places to go Uzzah touches the ark and he hits the, he hits the ground. He was just trying to keep it steady. He didn't want it to fall in the dirt. And God kills him. He didn't, he didn't just coincidentally die of some massive heart attack at that moment. God struck him and God killed him at that moment. And I want to look in this passage this morning at three different people and look at their attitudes to worship. We're going to look at, at Uzzah, going to look at David, and then going to look at David's wife, Michal, a little bit later on, and look at how they approach worship or what their attitude to worship is. And before I go any further, for, if you're like me, you have to fight a tendency for worship to, to, to mean music. And praise is part of our worship to God, but please, I'm not just talking about singing this morning. Worship, the Hebrew word for worship means to bow down, to bow down. And that could be bowing down in how you honor God in your finances. It could be bowing down in how you honor him in your time. It could be bowing down in how you honor him in your character. Any, any act of bowing down to God is an act of worship. And it doesn't matter whether there's music on or not. So think, well, as, as I go through this this morning, don't just be defaulting to, to how we sing. That's part of it, but it's only, it's only part of it. Uzzah is the first one I want to look at. And I think after reading about Uzzah, this guy that touches the ark and drops dead, you think everywhere where God's people gather and encounter his presence should almost have warning signs on. You, you, you drive past you know, a, a big house and big gates and there's a, there's a sign on the gate that says, beware of dog. I think on the church, if the church really is the church, there should be a sign saying, beware of God. <laughs> You're coming onto dangerous ground. You're coming onto glorious, holy ground. But to come into the presence of God is an awesome and a powerful and a dangerous place to be. And to come in flippantly is a very dangerous game to play. Uzzah in verse six took hold of the ark. He was afraid of, if, if you imagine the ark as representing God, he was afraid of God falling over. 
He was afraid of God going into the dirt and he reached out his hand to steady up God. And Eugene Peterson commenting on on this passage says that Uzzah's mistake was this, it is fatal to take charge of God. It is fatal to take charge of God. Uzzah is a person who has God in a box. Do you have God in a box? Do I ever put God in a box? You ever get a, a box of eggs in the supermarket and it says free range on the box of eggs? And then when you read the small print, it, it says something along the lines of these hens were allowed to go out of the cage for five minutes a day and walk around the cage and go back in. And that's pretty much enough for them to be designated as free range hens. You ever get that? Uzzah was, was, was like this with God. Uzzah had God in a cage. He had God in a box. And he said, I am a worshiper. I allow God to run free range in my life. But ultimately, Uzzah only let God out of the box occasionally. Uzzah was one of these guys who had God in the box and let him out on a Sunday morning and gave him his hour, gave him his hour and a half, gave him his dues, and then back in the box he went for the rest of the week. He claims to worship God, but he wants to keep God locked in and he wants to keep God safe. And sometimes we can have an attitude in the church that God might be offended if we allowed him to come into contact with the sort of people that Jesus came to die for. So we keep God in the box, keep him safe, it's all nice and clean and sterile, and we don't want any crossover between God and, and broken humanity. That was Uzzah's attitude to God. Keep God safe, keep him clean, keep him protected. And don't be feeling sorry for Uzzah. Don't be thinking to yourself, God's awful harsh here. Don't be, don't be you know, allowing yourself to, to feel that that. that you have to apologize on God's behalf that God should not have done this or that, that Uzzah, <laughs> Uzzah got uh, unfairly treated. You have to remember that Uzzah had this thing in his house for 20 years. The ark of God was in the house for 20 years. And Uzzah, although he dropped dead at the moment that he reached out and touched it, he'd been on a slow suicide for a long, long time. In fact, you could say Uzzah was dead before he left the house that day. He had become familiar with God. He'd become familiar with the presence of God. To the point that it didn't, it didn't cost him a thought to reach out and touch the ark that no one was to touch. And I think we can do that in the church, especially as we, as we go on and the years rack up <clears throat> of walking with God. And we look back and say, well, it's... Five years now since I started walking with God is 10 years, is 20 years, whatever. And we can start to become very familiar with him and lose the awe and lose the sense that I need to beware of God because he's an awesome, dangerous God. He's a holy God. The song we opened with there about the being still in his presence isn't just a call to, to calm down after breakfast, but it is, a, it is a call to just the incredible awe that is required when we come into his presence. It's a fearful thing to be in the presence of God. If you really study out in, in Isaiah chapter 7, where, where Isaiah uses the, the name Emmanuel for God with us, God with us made, meant different things for different people. For some people, God with us was an incredibly joyful thing. But for some people, God with us is terrifying judgment. The presence of God is a dangerous place and comes with warning signs. Uzzah had been dying for years, a slow death, 
familiar with the box. The box is always there. Every time I look into the front room, there's the box. And he lost his respect for God. And you can see the problem starting back in verse 3, where it says that they set the ark of God on a new cart. And anyone who knows their Old Testament, any Hebrew or Jew reading this or hearing this story told for the first time would be immediately screaming out, that's wrong. You don't put the ark of God on a cart. There is a way to carry it. Moses was told by God in, in, in the Exodus that the, there were to be whole or hoops put on the, on the side of the ark, little rings, and through the rings you would put poles and then people would carry the ark on the poles. So four guys, two at the front and two at the back with the, with the poles on their shoulders or, or one guy at each side with the poles on their shoulders. They're not touching the ark, but the presence of God is being carried by human beings. That's why it was designed that way. There's that sense of, oh, you don't touch this thing. You don't mess with it, but you carry it. And that's the way we are with the presence of God. We don't fool around with the presence of God, but we carry the presence of God. And what Uzzah is doing, and David let him do it. David was there, and we don't read of David saying this is wrong. David is probably as responsible here as Uzzah is. Uzzah is copying what he has seen other people do. The Philistines had this technology for building carts. They were good at cart building. And the Philistines had, had basically their influence on the culture for hundreds of years had caused Uzzah and the rest of the guys to look at this and say, look, there's a convenient way of moving this thing. We don't have to carry it. We don't have to, to go through all the, all the ritual and all the effort. Let's just put the ark on the cart and we'll just walk behind it. That will be easier. That will be more convenient. We won't be carrying the burden of this presence ourselves. See, Uzzah is substituting the latest technology of the Philistines to make things more efficient. And it is more efficient. Putting the ark on a cart is a more efficient way of moving the ark, but it's also impersonal, and that's where the problem lies. God's presence is to be carried by people, not by machines. Not by technology, not by organizations. It is carried by people who are set apart for him. And whenever Uzzah puts the ark on the cart, it's lights out. He's looking for a convenient way to worship God. He's the patron saint of those who critically embrace or who uncritically embrace technology without regarding the nature and the character of a holy God. And that's not a rant against iPhones and Macs. It's a rant against easy, convenient faith. That is no faith at all. I think our praise can sometimes be, in the contemporary church, a Philistine cart. Because I think it is easy sometimes to show up. It's convenient sometimes to praise God and enjoy it. Enjoy the music, enjoy singing. It doesn't really take much effort. And we don't have to bow the knee a lot of the time. I'm wary of, of the, the amount of influence that the sort of praise music movement has. I think it's a good thing if you approach it the right way, but I think it can be a Philistine cart that you can put the presence of God on, have a good time walking behind the cart and think everything's okay, but you're on a slow death. Because you're not bowing the knee. You're not really worshipping. 
people sometimes, you'll, you'll get Christians who will criticize more traditional churches and say, well, those, those places are, are dead and they're just going through the motions. Don't kid yourself into thinking that something that's more modern and upbeat cannot equally be dead and going through the motions. <laughs> but it's just more modern, upbeat motions. You can still have the same problems in your lives. Uzo wants nice Sunday morning praise. He wants to feel that he's done his duty towards God and protect God from the people that really need him. And I have to check my heart because Uzo syndrome can creep in very easily. Let's manage God. Let's give him a window of opportunity when he can get out of the box and then back into the box. And David's angry. In verses 8 to 10, it's, it's, verse 8 actually reads, David was full of wrath because of the Lord's wrath. <laughs> He's angry with God. But one of the things I love about David is David is angry with God and stays alive. Uzzah is religious and he's dead. David has this honest heart before God. You see it in the Psalms. He's angry with God and he's alive in his anger. Uzzah is religious and careful and tries to manage God and he is dead in his religion. And the ark gets sent to a guy's house. In, in verse 10, it says that David would not bring the ark. He got scared of God and he wouldn't bring the ark up to the city. Instead, in verse 10, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. You imagine what that was like. Obed-Edom hears a knock on the door and he comes and opens the door and there's nobody there. But there's this box on the doorstep with a sticky note on it saying, Uzzah touched this. Uzzah's funeral is tomorrow. Will you keep this in your house, please? And this thing sits in Obed-Edom's house. What's he meant to do with it? Anybody touches it, dies. And, and he, it, did David not like Obed-Edom? <laughs> Why did he send it to his house? But Obed-Edom keeps the thing in his house. And for three months, he's blessed. The presence of God blesses him and his whole household is blessed. And then David thinks, right, we're going to have to get this thing. We're going to have to move it again. We're going to have to bring it up to Jerusalem. And the second time David moves it, look at how he moves it. In uh, verse 13, he goes down and he gets it. And it says, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David was wearing a linen ephod, took off his kingly robes, and he wore the garment of a priest. David was wearing a linen ephod, and he danced before the Lord with all his might. In fact, it says that he whirled around before the Lord. He was jumping up and spinning around and doing all sorts as he worshipped. He worshipped the Lord. He danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. In verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And he offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. He then blessed the people with food. And in verse 20, he went home to bless his family. This is worship. Uzzah doesn't worship. Uzzah manages God and dies. David worships exuberantly, passionately. Again, don't just think about how you behave when the music's on. This is not what we're talking about. That's part of it. It's not what we're talking about fully, though. David's worship is exuberant. He takes off his robes. Do you take off your robes when you're worshiping God? What is it in your life that you wear that makes you feel important, 
some role, some position you have, and, and as long as you have those robes on, you are that person. David, in the presence of God, casts all that off. And he's wearing a linen ephod, basically like a nightgown that the priests would wear. He's uncovered. And I wonder, just <clears throat> at the last minute this morning, I was reading over this, and I thought, is, is this David putting right what Adam got wrong? Adam had been naked in the garden and had been in the presence of God, and sin made him aware of his nakedness, and then he was covered. And David here is practically naked in the presence of God, worshipping him fully. He's uncovered. This is who he is. He's not hiding behind his role or his position. This is him before God. He lays his robes down. In verse 17, he's intentional about worship. Do you see that it says he brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched? He had already prepared a place for the ark to go. He was intentional about worship. Are we intentional in our lives about worship? Not about singing. I'm going to keep saying that in case you think that's what I'm talking about because I'm not. Are you intentional about worship, bowing the knee? Do you look for opportunities to do it? David has a place prepared. He has planned this out in advance. I'm going to worship. In verse 18, part of his worship is generosity to the people. He gives them bread and he gives them cakes of raisins. I might be pushing it to see bread and wine in there, but I tend to see bread and wine everywhere. He blesses the people. He's generous as his act of worship. Again, if we just keep thinking about worship as singing, we'll never actually realize that an act of generosity is an act of worship. We are bowing the knee to God with your possessions, with your finances, with your home, with your dinner table, whatever. Acts of generosity towards people, those are acts of worship. David knows how to worship. In verse 20, he goes, he's, he's heading home and he's determined he's going to bless his family. It's an act of worship to bless your family. I think some of us can get so involved in what's going on in terms of activity around the church that so we don't bless our families enough. We make enough time, you know, those of us that are parents, just to play with our kids and bless them. Daddy's too busy. Daddy's at a meeting. Daddy's at this. Daddy's at that. That's worship. To bless your family is worship. To be with them. To give them time. David is just completely abandoned in his praise. The whole city is watching him. All his men, his mighty men, his warriors are watching him. And he is bowing the knee to God. You see, the presence of God is carried by people like this. The presence of God is not carried by sparkly, impressive machines. It's carried by people like this, worshippers. Worshipping in spirit and truth. Whenever Jesus says in John 4 about worshipping in spirit and truth, that word truth means uncovered, unhidden, naked. Nothing to hide. And David is the, is the prototype worshipper in spirit and in truth. But there's another person watching as well. In verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. This is David's wife. She's the daughter of Saul. 
and she's watching from the window. She sees her husband worshipping, dancing before the Lord, and her heart is filled with hatred. His exuberance in worship arouses her despising of him. It says in verse 20, whenever David goes home to bless his household, he comes through the door and he's bouncing and he's, he's full of joy and, and he's, he's coming in to, to see his family. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, comes out to meet him and says sarcastically, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls. That's what he meets. Just a slap in the teeth as he comes home. How the king has distinguished himself today, disrobed in the the sight of the slave girls. Alexander White said, and I paraphrase this slightly, those who can't hear the music will always despise those who are dancing. That's good. That's old. That's vintage. Those who can't hear the music will always despise those who are dancing. It's good to always hear the music, not the music of the instruments, but the music of heaven, the music of the kingdom, worshipping, always worshipping in our actions and how we lead our lives, worshipping. And there are those associated with the people of God, like Michal, who don't hear the music, and they despise those who do. She is uncomfortable with David's exuberance. She's comfortable with Uzzah. She's fine with Uzzah. Uzzah's a religious guy. Uzzah manages God. Uzzah shows up and, and does the business. He, he, he'll walk beside the ark. It's all very stately and it's all very careful and it's all very dead. David's worship was too much for her. Too much. How the king has distinguished himself today. David, you're taking all of this too seriously. You really are. You don't need to go to those lengths. You, you, you don't need to do all that that you did today. Just, just relax. Be like Uzzah. Be okay to be like Uzzah. Take the easy option, David. Don't burden yourself with carrying the presence of God as a consecrated human being. Put him on an ark, or in an ark, on a box, on a, on a cart even, and, and do it the easy way. There's no need to go to all that effort. Take the easy option. Don't be too serious about it. There'll always be voices like Michal and Uzzah coming in and saying, you're too serious about this. Calm down. Take it easy. Don't worry about those character issues. Just leave it. Let it go. God will not mind. Don't worry about prayer. Don't get too serious about praying and seeking God. It's all right. You're too serious about that. Don't be, don't be serious about reaching out to others. Somebody else will do it. The gospel, as long as you're okay, you know, like Jonah in his boat last week sleeping, as long as you're all right, don't, don't worry about the rest. You're too serious about this. You're too over-exuberant. You're too passionate. There'll always be those voices. And the voice of, of Michal, you hear her voice coming again a thousand years later whenever a woman comes and pours perfume on Jesus and Judas pipes up three words, why this waste? Nothing done for Jesus is ever a waste. Nothing done in exuberance of worship is ever a waste. We can never do too much in terms of how we worship God. Never. We can never give too much time to the gospel and to his kingdom. We can never be too generous to people. We can never outgive God. 
But there's, all, there's these voices that will come in and say, what a waste. What a waste. Don't, don't give your time to that. That's, you don't need to do that. Don't give your money to that. You don't need to do that. Don't, don't worry about those things. Just, just cool the jets a bit. It's a waste. Nothing that's ever done for the king is a waste. Ever. In fact, there's a lovely verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 where <clears throat> Paul has he's been speaking about the resurrection and at the very end of a long, long chapter, the last verse says, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You cannot waste anything on Jesus. There is no such thing. Give him as much time, as much money, as much praise, as much love, as much obedience, as much bowing the knee as you can give him. There's never a point where you've gone too far, ever. There is no wasting on him. How the king has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls. Michal's attitude to worship was to stand and watch and criticize. Convicted in her own heart about the fact that she didn't hear the music. And therefore despising the one who did and who danced to it. In the context of worship, Uzzah and Michal do not worship at all. One fussily functions in terms of looking after God. The other one watches from a distance and criticizes. And I wonder then when David says in verse 22, I will become even more undignified than this. I wonder did he know the power of what he was saying? She has accused him of of losing his dignity publicly, of being disrobed in an act of worship while the servant girls watch as he comes into Jerusalem. She has said, you know, how the king has distinguished himself in the sight of the servant girls. And, she, and, and, and David says to her, you think that was undignified? Just you wait. You're going to see something more undignified than this. I wonder, was he speaking prophetically down through the ages? Because in David's lineage, there was another one who was disrobed in the sight of the servant girls, the women that were around the foot of the cross. There was a king who came to Jerusalem and was disrobed in a very undignified act of worship. But it was worship. It was bowing the knee to the Father in in Gethsemane the night before and asking, is there another way? But if there's no other way, we'll do this. That was worship. That was undignified worship. Disrobed, naked. He hung on the cross. He didn't even have an ephod on. He didn't have anything on. He hung naked in the sight of the servant girls. In the ultimate act of worship and praise unto God. So in our, in our story this morning, we look, at, we look at three people in the context of worship, but only one is worshiping, David. And his worship actually points forward to, to even greater worship. And I would encourage you just to take stock. Are you, are you in the story? Can you see elements? I can sometimes see elements of Uzzah in me. And I have to keep fighting against it. 
the tendency to try to manage God and, and, and sort of say, well, here's, you can do this and you can do that. And I'll stop you from falling over. Stupid beyond belief. Some of you might not fall into that trap. You might fall into the trap of Michal where you watch somebody else's lavish worship to God and you criticize it because it convicts you in your own heart. But ultimately, let's look to Jesus and look to his undignified act of being disrobed and bowing the knee completely to the Father's will. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We want to be a worshiping people. You told us very clearly a few years ago, Lord, you, you wrote it on our hearts that your call to us here was to build you a worshiping community. And that just does not mean a bunch of people who get together and sing well and hope that somebody passing by walking the dog might hear it. And Lord, I pray that you would correct our, our view of what that call is. It's a call to bow the knee. And I pray you'd help us in every area of our lives, in our time, in our money, in our generosity, in our friendships, our relationships, in our homes, in our singing, that we would bow the knee and we would be radical worshipers. That, Lord, I would be a radical worshiper, not just now, but tomorrow, tomorrow morning, I'd be a radical worshiper, bowing the knee in my character to what it is that you call me to, Lord. Holy Spirit, we invite you to, to speak to us as we, as we praise you, Lord, that you would deal with our hearts as we stand before you in this place together. And I pray that we would take off the, the robes that we hide behind and lay them down and be naked before you, Lord, uncovered, unhidden, and that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you'd convict and challenge and encourage our hearts, Lord. We want to be that worshipping community. But Father, expand our vision of what that means. And I pray, Father, we would be completely abandoned to you. To the point that people would come to us and say, that's too much. You don't need to do all that. You don't need to give all that. You don't need to get that excited about it. You don't need to get that worked up about it. Well, I think we do. We do need to get worked up about Jesus. We do need to get worked up about the kingdom of God. And I pray, Father, you'd stir up our slumbering hearts. Those of us that have had the ark in our houses for 20 years and have got used to it and would, would be dangerously close to reaching out and touching it. Father, you'd speak to us. And David had three months that he had to think about what happened, Lord, and inevitably had to repent and go back and get it right, get into your word and find out the right way to move that thing. And I just pray we would have a heart like David did, a heart after you, a heart to, to walk according to your word and to carry your presence as you have called us to carry your presence. Thank you, Jesus.